Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today, as always, we've got an amazing guest on our show. He is the director of Superhuman Academy, the author of Out of Your Wheelhouse, Rediscover the Joy of Learning and Expand the Boundaries of Possibility, and the host of the podcast, Superhuman Playbook. Welcome to the show, Colin. What's up, David? Happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. Though, based on your intro uh, to the show, I don't know if I fit the category of athlete. <laughs> but the other stuff, I, I'm, I'm okay on. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, no, I always kind of tie athlete in there just because of kind of the the mindset and a lot of the sayings. And then also that so much of how the brain and nervous system works is physical. So I'm sure we'll kind of dive into that, but man, you really, really love learning. And what's been your source for this quest for knowledge? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, you mentioned my my first book, Out of Your Wheelhouse. Um, and that was, I wrote that book actually when I was still in college. I published it right after I, maybe right before, right after I graduated, sometime close to when I graduated. Okay. And the reason I wrote the book was because uh, I know for me, learning became something that was pretty terrible, <laughs> which I think uh, a lot of people have that experience. I know I've talked to thousands of people at this point about it. And so I, I know a lot of other people share that experience where they go through school and it seems like learning just gets more and more miserable. Yes. And then that's where I was. I got to the point where I was just super burnt out on being in school, being in classes and learning had lost all of its enjoyment uh, for me. But thankfully, I, uh, through a series of interesting events uh, that really transformed and I rediscovered the joy. So I wanted to write about my story. And that's what that first book was kind of like my, the beginning of my journey, discovering it and, and what happened and things I figured out about my brain. And that got me really excited about learning again and made it fun. So I just wanted to share that with other people and help them do the same. Absolutely. And this is at the end of college that you rediscovered the learning, correct? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, so really I would say like sophomore year of college was kind of like the bottom of the barrel for me. That was where I was like, oh man, I, I cannot stand another class. Like I don't make right, me yeah. <laughs> go. Um, and yeah, it was really around junior year where, where that flipped. And a big reason for that was because I was looking for anything. I was like anything that can make this more effective, faster. And I wasn't doing it because I wanted to reignite the joy of learning. Like that wasn't my goal. My goal was, I just want to get through school without dying. (laughs) You know, I was so miserable. And thankfully I didn't just figure out how to make learning easier and faster. I really discovered, you know, how to make it the most fun thing you can do. I mean, it, it's something that I, like you said, I just love it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm always learning. That's, that's what I'm passionate about. Okay. Well, how, how did you do that then? Like, uh, what sort of triggered this? You, you've got this expansive, like, get me out of college, like as quick as possible. And the best way to do that is just to learn better. But, uh, yeah, everybody kind of has that thought, but nothing happens. So what, kind of occurred with you then? Yeah, uh, I got lucky. (laughs) So essentially, in my search for how do I 
you know, succeed in school while putting in zero effort was really my goal. Like, cause I wasn't doing very well. I was trying, I was working extremely hard and not getting results. Right. And I wanted to flip that on its head. I wanted to get, do nothing and get amazing results. You know, I think that's kind of what everybody wants. There. It's like, what's, what's the magic pill that can allow me to skip all of the pain and just get the stuff that I want at the end. It's like, how can I not go to the gym, but have an amazing body? That's what, that's what I was after essentially, but for academic purposes. And so in that quest, I, I stumbled across a guy named Jonathan, Jonathan Levy. Okay. Uh, in his course, it's, it was, um, there's been different courses, but he was the founder of Superhuman Academy, which I now run. So lots of, <laughs> a lot has changed you know, <laughs> since that time. It's been an interesting string of events. But um, he had a course where it was, it was essentially teaching accelerated learning skills. It was, it was, you know, kind of hacks, I guess you could say. Right. Like, how can you uh, memorize a ton of stuff super fast? Um, how can you speed read, you know, read super fast? And that looked attractive to me. I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll read super fast. Everything will just be locked into my brain. And then I'll waltz into the test and I'll pass everything. And it'll be super. That was my goal. Um, so I, I spent like all my money at the time, which was not very much, but Hey, it was, it was a lot for me. And I was, I was living off of government loans and grants. Um, so yes, yeah, the all, all of the money I had, which all came from someone else. <laughs> and <laughs> Spent it all. I was like, you know, this is either going to work or I'm going to drop out of college, frankly, because I was barely hanging on. So it was kind of like, I think that was actually an important point because I think if you, if you're going to make a real change, like sometimes it requires being, you know, in the frying pan, you know, in, in that spot where it's like, this either works or it's, it's over. And I'm really grateful now that I was at that point because I think if I hadn't been, I wouldn't have gotten the transformation that I experienced, but it was because it was like, no, this, this either works or I'm like done with school, done with learning. I'm going to go, I don't know, uh, get, get some job that doesn't require a degree, whatever. So thankfully what happened is when I, when I took the course, I want to emphasize the point that it wasn't like some special like technique that I learned in the course that changed everything. Mm -hmm. It was a realization and the realization happened from kind of a silly experiment. So uh, one of the things I learned in the course was how to memorize numbers. Okay. It's like, okay, numbers, who, who, who cares about memorizing numbers? <laughs> like, right, it's like yeah. cool, you can memorize digits of pi. Like, that's exciting. But the reason this was important was because if you had asked me at that time, do you think you could memorize like 50 digits if you'd asked me that, I would have said, no, no way. Okay. Like I can maybe get like right, eight or something like that. Yeah. Like definitely couldn't get 50. Maybe if you gave me like two days and I was just like reading them over and over and over to myself, eventually I would get it. But then I would probably forget it like next week. You know, it's, it's not, <laughs> that would yeah. be my experience. And if you'd asked me, could you memorize a thousand digits? I'd be like, no, just throw that out the window. Like not only would be that, that would be terribly dull, <laughs> but I don't think my brain even has the capacity to do that. And so what changed everything for me was Jonathan said, okay, well, here's a technique you can use. You can memorize as many digits as you want long-term and it's fun and it'll happen really quickly. And I was like, that's full. Of, that's like BS, like no way. So I, I tried it just to like show that, okay, this, this isn't really going to work. And then I can throw this course away and I can quit school and everything. 
the problem was what happened is within like a couple days, I was able to memorize, you know, 50 digits forwards, backwards in a couple minutes. Wow. And I could do way more than that too. I could do hundreds if I wanted to, like there was really no obvious limit. And the reason why that was so crazy is because that told me, Hey, here's something that you thought was impossible, especially for you, for me in that case, just a few days ago. And now you can do it easily. Like, isn't that bizarre that something could go from impossible? Like literally, I don't think you could, the human brain is capable of doing that to, I can do it in a few days and it's not hard. And it was actually fun. That was, that was what changed things for me was that experience because then it, it caused me to ask the question, well, what else do I currently think is impossible that I already have the capacity to do and that I could potentially do in a few days? I mean, like that question, that's what changed everything for me because I started to get super curious about that. And I was like, I wonder like if there's any other like cheat codes that I could use and unlock some superpowers in my brain that I don't know about. And I got really excited about it. And that just started like this snowball effect. Right. So um, are you going to give them a a little extra teaser of how this is actually possible to memorize 50 to 1000 digits? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's not really that much of a secret. You can honestly, you could probably look this up and you could find this stuff you know, anywhere. It's not like closely guarded. Um, if you just look up like the major method, um, that's like, that's the first thing that I learned to do it, but people do it with what's called PAO systems. It's, it's, it's stuff that like, if you look up memory champions, Mm -hmm. they all use the exact same techniques and they've been around for thousands of years. Like they're, they're they're not a new discovery. It's just stuff that people haven't heard of. It's, it's literally just, well, if you can convert, anything into images Mm -hmm. and those images can form especially personal detailed absurd interesting images and you can create stories from those which actually counterintuitively doesn't take really like frontal lobe type processing like people think when they think of doing this it all sounds like very energy intensive very concentrated like you need to be smart you need to be creative it's actually kind of the opposite not like you need to be dumb or not creative but it's actually much more of a passive experience if you're doing it correctly it's like you're just letting your brain do what it already knows how to do it's not that you're learning a new skill you're unlearning a lot of the stupid stuff that you've been doing your whole life to learn (laughs) that's the weird thing about it it's like when i teach people stuff like, like this stuff i'm not really teaching them anything i'm helping them discover something that they already have and unlearn a bunch of, you know, garbage habits that they, they've built up. Um, so right. everyone listening to this podcast right now has this capacity already. Like you, I, I, I don't need to teach it to you. So to, to prove it to you, like if you're thinking this is BS, which is fair, um, <laughs> like right now, if you're listening to this, like you can close your eyes. And if I uh, told you a story, let's say, um, just imagine there's a dog and the dog is chasing the mailman down the street and he like bites him in the pants and rips a hole in him. And then the mailman, you know, runs away from his truck and leaves it behind. And then the, the dog drives off in the truck. All right. So kind of a silly story got more absurd towards the end, whatever. I'm guessing if you're listening to this, you had no problem seeing that in your head. 
Oh, of course not. No. There right, it is. Right, right. You've got the dog, he's facing whatever. And I'm guessing everybody who's listening, you saw something slightly different. Like, okay, maybe the dog was a German shepherd or maybe it was a Shih Tzu. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if the dog was. Um, but the point is your brain was able to turn that into a movie just from hearing me say it. And it didn't really require, probably, it didn't really require a bunch of conscious effort. Like you weren't straining to do that. It almost happened automatically. If that was your experience, like if it just happened automatically, that is literally all you need to do. Like it's it's the exact same software. It's just learning how to use it. And most people don't know how to use it. It's just like it's there. It happens automatically sometimes. But when then when you actually try to learn something, you don't use that software at all. You completely leave it dormant. And you use a bunch of other software that's not built for that purpose at all. Like, you, <laughs> like you're trying to learn using the wrong uh, okay. systems. Yes. Yeah, instead of using the systems you already have that are much better. Yeah. Absolutely. So will this teach me how to have like a photographic memory? Like, can I memorize pages of a textbook then? Yeah. So great question. Um, so, I mean, you're a brain guy, so you already know this, but you know, something interesting about the brain is, um, so there are different areas devoted to different functions, but they all kind of cross connect oh, with each other there, there's yeah. <laughs> so you can like say okay this part of the brain does this but that's always kind of uh, a little bit oversimplistic with the brain but anyway one kind of big picture thing to understand about the brain is if you've got more activity in one area it's going to cause there to be less activity in another area it's not it's kind of a zero-sum game mm -hmm. in, in terms of you crank it up in some spot it kind of go it goes down in another spot generally and there have been some really cool studies where they've shown that like, Hey, if you, if you, um, stimulate one part of the brain, you can get people like random civilians off the street to be like hyper accurate at target shooting, for example, and they've never trained before. And you're like, well, how is that possible? Why don't we use that all the time? And I think the question about, can I memorize a page of text instantly? It's kind of the same question. It's like, yes, your brain is capable of doing that, but there's a reason why it doesn't. Yeah, too much stuff, right? Well, it's not It's not that it's too much. It's that mm -hmm. your brain is balancing different priorities, right? So like the, the system that's really good at target shooting is not good at deciding which targets are worth shooting and which aren't. It's just good at shooting targets. Mm -hmm. And so like if you were just running that system all the time for target shooting and I don't know, maybe your cousin walked down the range you might just shoot them, right? Because <laughs> you've turned off the system that's deciding what's worth shooting and what's not per se. You're just shooting the targets. And so the same thing happens when you ask the question with like memorizing pages of text. Yes, that capacity exists in your brain, but there's a reason why it doesn't use it because the thing is like forgetting is a super important ability that your brain has. It's like you, you don't want to treat everything as equal. I mean, same with target no, shooting, like yeah. the target and your cousin different. <laughs> we want to differentiate those. And so like, if you've heard of um, like Kim Peek, he was a savant and he could read one page with one eye and another page with another eye and memorize everything word for word. And you could, he could recall it later with perfect accuracy. It's he's the guy that the movie, the rain man was based off of. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But if you look at Kim Peek's life as a savant, his brain was essentially prioritizing certain functions to, while neglecting others. 
And you could see it, like it, it causes certain other impairments in other areas. And so oftentimes when people ask me about like, well, I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to like memorize everything instantly. It's like, you actually, you actually don't want that. You don't want your brain to you work that way. Don't want it. <laughs> what you want to do is you want to learn how to leverage the way that your brain already naturally works. And you want to forget things like there's, you don't want to remember everything. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> like well, forgetting well, is really important. Yeah. Let's go into that point because one of the major skills out there is to actually unlearn things is that we become so good and entrained with bad habits throughout the course of our life that uh, unlearning it is difficult for people. Uh, what sort of strategies do you have for unlearning and forgetting? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So it depends on what it is, of course. Um, like, for example, if you have uh, like trauma, that you're going to treat that differently than if you have like you just can't get a song out of your head, right? <laughs> they're kind of, they're different levels of extremity. There's different systems involved, right? So, well, but it one, depends on the song here. Come on. <laughs> okay, that, that's fair. There are some songs <laughs> that are probably pretty traumatic. Um, but I will say one that's like really, really practical, which is a lot of people, when I'm talking to them, it seems like there's just chaos in their head. Yes, they have the same thoughts. They're just spiraling through their head all the time. And they're, they're consuming a ton of energy and a ton of attention with these, these spiral thoughts, or I'll call them like boomerang thoughts. They keep coming back. And one of the reasons they keep coming back is because your working memory is very limited. Uh, so you might have heard the seven plus or minus two, whatever. Essentially, that working memory, uh, which is like more of your conscious memory, it's, it's highly associated with IQ. Um, that working memory can't hold very much at once. So for example, if you think like numbers, since we talked about that before, like if I start listing off numbers, one, six, five, three, two, nine, eight, probably right around here, you're going to start to feel like you're losing them a little bit. And if I keep going they're you're kind of going <laughs> to, it's like you're trying to hold a whole bunch of things at once and then they all tumble out of your hands. Um, so that working memory is really limited. And one of the, one of the things about that is if you feel like there are things that are important especially unfinished tasks. That's the Zygernick effect, right? That you remember things that are unfinished better than finished tasks. Once you've kind of had closure, you'll let it go. But the reason why people have boomerang thoughts a lot of the times is because they don't feel like they've gotten closure on something. They haven't completed the task. They haven't closed the loop. They haven't like solidified the concept, whatever, something like that. Uh, and so okay. what, what the working memory is doing, it's saying, well, I can't hold all of these things in front of me at once, but I also don't want to drop them. So that's the dilemma. So what do I do? Well, I juggle. That's what you do when you have too many things to hold, but you don't want to drop anything. You start to juggle. And so your working memory is able to do this. It throws things kind of <laughs> like back yeah. in your brain to kind of loop around. It's like, I can't hold you right now, but I can, I can hold you again later. And it throws things. And so you end up with your a juggling act that's going on. And if you're doing this juggling act, it becomes extremely hard to hold new things. It's kind of like if you imagine you're, you're juggling four objects and then somebody throws you a fifth one, it gets progressively harder and harder and harder. And if you're doing that and then you're trying to learn something new, forget it. It's your it's brain, not gonna happen, yeah. especially that conscious part of your brain has run out of capacity. It's already juggling. It's really struggling. So what do you do about that? Well, you need to close those loops somehow. 
So one way to do it is, well, complete the tasks, complete the thought, whatever. But sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes you just have a lot of tasks. And so this is why people outsource to writing things down, to calendars, things like that. So I, I like to classify things in, in kind of two buckets. It's like there's things that you want to have in your head and there's things you don't want to have in your head. Okay. So if it's something I ha- I want to have in my head, I probably don't necessarily write it down, which is opposite of what a lot of people do. They they write down the things they want to have in their head and then they don't write down the things that they don't want. <laughs> like pe- people do this opposite. I don't I don't really understand why this is our tendency, but it, it is like you can see this in your day to day life. A lot of times you like, OK, I need to remember that. I need to remember that you keep it in your head and then it's like, oh, that's important. I'll write it down. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, wait a minute we should actually kind of flip that around a little bit. Let's let's go and write down stream of consciousness, everything that's in your head, get it all out. So all of those unclosed loops, write that stuff down. You'll feel this, like, especially some people haven't, it's been years since they've done this. And so there's like, they're juggling 952 things and they can't, like, they feel so scattered. If you feel like right, that, yeah. <laughs> my recommendation is go do some stream of consciousness writing, which means write exactly whatever is in your head. There's no editing, there's no... Like there's no logic to it. It doesn't matter if it's ridiculous. Keep writing until you feel like that flood has kind of slowed to a little trickle. And it's kind of like, you should feel like a weight lift off your shoulders. Should feel like your brain, like, like all of a sudden has so much more space in there. (laughs) It's like, it's it's got some space to move now. You've unloaded it and just got it, got it out. Yeah. Now, on that point, though, uh, would you say kind of some of the trends right now, like positive psychology, to always be writing it down or positive journaling, would be the opposite then? Because those are things that you'd want to keep in your head. So wouldn't negative journaling be a better idea then? Uh, I think there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's something to that. Um, I mean, when it comes to the pi- positive psychology side of things, like here's the thing. And, and I think um, I don't know how much you dabble in, in the world of psychology. I know you've definitely got some overlap, but um, it's very, very dangerous to lie to yourself. Okay. Yeah. Dive deeper into that. It's very dangerous to lie to yourself on both ends of the spectrum. So if you tell yourself negative things that aren't true, very dangerous. That one's more obvious to people. If you tell yourself positive things that aren't true, that's also can be very dangerous. So I'll give an example. Um, I, I, I actually run a psychology program too. Um, okay. So I help, I help psychologists get fully licensed. Uh, and that's, there's, there's this test you have to pass in North America. It's really brutal. So I help them with this. And one thing I see a lot when I'm working with them, it's ironic because it's psychologists. So you think, okay, they've got this all figured out, but it's like, no, psychologists are people too. <laughs> right. So they do, they make the same mistakes. And so one thing when they're take when they're going to take this test, they tell themselves over and over and everybody tells them that they should do this and they're psychologists and they think they should do this. They say, I'm going to pass this test. I'm going to do great. They go in the mirror every morning and they give themselves affirmations about how they're smart, they're capable, all of these things. And then they go and they fail the test. And then what happens? It's like, well, I told myself all of these positive things yes. and then they failed to actually materialize. So now what happens? Your brain's like, well, I can't tell myself those positive things anymore because now I know they're a lie. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. And so what am I left with? Well, the obvious choice is, well, now I'm just left with the negative things, which is 
you're not going to do this. You're, you're bad at this. You're not smart. You're not capable. And so they get in the negative spiral. You want to avoid both of those, in my opinion. So you want to say, look, the world is a hard place. Life is difficult. You're not fully capable. You're vulnerable. You're small, but you can be better. You have the capacity to change. You have the capacity to grow. You have the capacity to learn. Just because you made a mistake once doesn't mean you have to make it again. You have the capacity to choose. You have agency in your life. Like these are true things that are empowering. They're not locking you into a negative spiral, but they're also not being dishonest about your limitations. Right. Absolutely. So you're going out on a ledge here and saying that being a realist is actually a thing and is important. <laughs> yeah. And it's valuable because I, I don't know when people say I'm being a realist, usually they're just saying that because they just said something cynical right before that. And they're like, I'm just being right, a realist. Yes. It's like, okay, there's, there's wisdom to cynicism. Yes. The world is a hard place. Life is hard. You're limited. You're vulnerable. All of those things are true, but you need to follow it up with the butt. <laughs> the but is that you have agency, you have capacity. And that's what, you know, learning is all about. It's, it's about, I am, I am not what I want to be right now. Like I, I'm not the best version of myself, but I can change and I can keep moving that direction. And it's finding, it's finding the love and the joy and the process of change rather than obsessing about who you are right now in this moment or who you really, really want to be, but you're not. It's right. about, I am the person who can become something better. And so would you part say that maybe more uh, stoicism? Sure. We, <laughs> I won't, if we want to put a label I won't to box it in too much, I think you could probably find similar threads to that philosophy in lots of different places. But, but yeah, it's, it's a really important mindset when it comes to learning because, I mean, where I was, you know, if we tie this back to my story in college, yes, I was saying things like, I'm stupid, I'm slow, I'm not very capable, it takes me longer to do everything than it takes everybody else, I have to get accommodations on tests because I'm anxious, you know, I've got all these things I'm telling myself about who I am right now. And then even the things I said about who I wanted to be, it was like, I want to be the guy that puts in no effort and gets all the reward. Right. Like yes. I'm, I'm looking at this impossible standard and I'm like, I want to be that I'm this. And really both of those things were negative images, even though one of them seems like really positive. I was only looking at it to disparage myself and see how far I was from that ideal. It wasn't something that was like calling me to something better. It was just making me feel worse about who I was. Right. And well, learning so, though, about a lot of, the ability to change. Yeah. Well, that ability to change is so important. But a lot of people, though, they get stuck in that that negative thought pattern you just explained. I'm not good enough. I need all these these this help with with learning, and they search out diagnoses for it. Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of speak on on that. Um, how dangerous sometimes these diagnoses can be in just enabling people not to do better. Yeah. So, I mean, I can speak to that personally because uh, when I was struggling, so I actually did really well in school up till college. Um, I right. was the person who was putting in very little effort and getting good results. And so, you know, I kind of, <laughs> I was like, man, I wish I could go back. I get to college and I'm putting in tons of effort and getting terrible results. And so 
I eventually I got I got um, referred to what was called the Disability Resource Center, mm-hmm. and there they told me, "Oh, you just have severe anxiety that's impairing your ability to perform on on tests and to study and all these things." And so they gave me a label that I could apply to myself as an explanation, like an umbrella explanation for why I wasn't the person that I could be. Okay. It was anxiety, essentially, right? right. So okay. I could just tell people I have anxiety and it, there, there's some comfort in that, right? Because it's kind of like a get out of jail free card in a way. Mm-hmm. It's a way to... It, I like to say you're not actually explaining the problem. You're explaining away the problem. Uh, okay. Right. right. You're, just tr- you're just finding something you can stick the problem on that you can throw. It's kind of a scapegoat. But like to me, anxiety wasn't the problem. The problem was that I couldn't reach my goals. The anxiety was an obstacle to reaching my goals. But like that was the pro- problem was that there was there was some like disconnect between how do I reach my goal? Like I didn't know how to do it. Oh, okay. And so the anxiety was maybe manifesting because I didn't know how to reach my goals. <laughs> right. Like, yes. It was, it wasn't the problem itself. It was kind of symptomatic. It was, it was a surface level manifestation of other things that were deeper. And absolutely. So I, I think it is really disempowering because every time I, I, I get on consultations with people all the time. And one of the first things I hear out of people's mouths frequently, not every time, is, oh, hey, just so you know, uh, before we get into this, I just want you to let you know, I, I have a really bad dyslexia. Um, I have, you know, I, you know, some, they'll, they'll throw out some learning disability, they'll throw out some issue. And it's almost like they want to set the standards and the expectations as low as possible right away. Because oh, okay, like, if you yeah. set the expectations really low, then like anything that happens is like, hey, it's better, <laughs> it's better than, than our expectations. <laughs> It's like, but the, the problem is that's a self-fulfilling prophecy when you, when you label yourself that way. I tell people this with memory. It's like, if you tell people, Hey, sorry, I, I'm really bad with names. I'm probably going to have to ask you again. That's just one example. But if you tell yourself that, what are you telling yourself? You're saying, I'm not going to remember their name the first time. So I don't even, I shouldn't even bother listening because I'm not going to catch it anyway. And so what do you do? You don't listen. And so you don't catch it. So you don't remember their name. So you say, I've got a bad memory and it's just a repeating cycle. And so, so how would somebody get away from that and actually yeah. learn names? What would be a few, <laughs> few ways or, well, or the, the underlying solution to the problem? The answer to that is frustratingly pay attention. Because <laughs> that's really the problem for most people. Is they, they don't pay attention when you say that. They're, they're often, they're like, okay, we're, we're in the formality stage where people are saying their names. I'm going to check out. I know how to run this program on autopilot. So I'll just do that. And then I'll ask them later because everybody forgets names anyway, because nobody pays attention. So, I mean, it's really an attention problem. It's not because your memory is broken, but on the broader issue of, of labeling and, and, and dangers of that, it's not, you know, I'm not going out there and saying, Oh no, like anxiety doesn't exist or learning disabilities aren't real. Like I'm not saying that because they are. Right. I hear you on that. that yes, absolutely. <laughs> the yeah. issue though, is that, like people try to prove the positive extreme when what they should do is try to just try to disprove the negative extreme. So what I mean by that is you don't have to prove to yourself. I'm amazing at everything. I'm a superhero. I can do anything. I'm super capable. Like that's like the positive extreme. And that's kind of what I wanted to be. I just wanted to be able to say that about myself and I couldn't. And so I was sad. 
but you don't have to do that. That, that, that creates a downward spiral because all of the evidence that you're going to collect in your life is going to show, tell you you're not the perfect person because you're not. (laughs) And so all the evidence, the truth is going to say you're not perfect. And so people focus on that and it becomes a downward spiral. Every piece of evidence you get is proving that you're not perfect. When in fact, the exact same set of evidence is also proving you're not as bad as you could be. (laughs) There's actually a negative extreme. Maybe you don't know exactly what it looks like, but here's an example. Like you could say, ah, I am, I just, I can't get myself out of bed in the morning. I am a, I'm lazy as heck and I'm, I just, I don't do anything. I'm a sloth. All right. That's the, that's the negative extreme, right? All you need is one piece of evidence to prove that that's not absolutely true. You get up at 6am one time. And then what you've proven is I can get up early. If I choose to, I have that capacity inside of me. I could be that person I could work to, and I'm not telling people you should get up early. Honestly, I don't get up that early if I don't have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not one of those 4 a.m. go run 10 miles type of people. <laughs> and, no, no. <laughs> but I'm also like, look, like I have that capacity. I've proven it to myself. I'm not always going to live up to the maximum person I could be. But you know what? Dang it. I've got a capacity to change and improve. And I can collect feedback. I'm smart enough to see. Uh, evidence of things i can see that you know i can do better nice and that's i'm the gonna entire aim goal is just to get better and yeah. uh speaking about getting better like we're all kind of here to, to sort of change the world and the things that held us back and you mentioned school just not being interesting and at a certain point and uh i couldn't agree more <laughs> i've done a lot of it and uh i I had to go out in the working field before I, I went back for, for any advanced, any more advanced education. And, uh, actually I was a teacher for a while as well. So, so I saw it in the students as well. And I, I love this in your book. You, you put one of my favorite quotes down there uh, by Grant Allen, and that is never let schooling interfere with education. So if we had to change schooling to be, more about curiosity, learning, and that excitement. Uh, and you had free reign to do it. Uh, how would you change the education system? Uh, that's a great question because that is my life mission. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I think Elon Musk said um, it's easier to land a rocket on Mars than it is to like change the education system. So. Um, and he, and he's tried a little bit. I think he actually started some sort of online school. I'm not super familiar with it, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's actually, yeah, go ahead. I I remember, uh, Elon going into how his, his kids were at, at some sort of special private school to the way, way that they, they should learn type thing. (laughs) But yeah, what would be your version of that? Well, I can tell you, I'm, well, we'll, we'll see. People are going to listen to this in five years and they'll look me up and see if I've done anything. But um, my goal <laughs> is to actually start a school. So I'm working on this Okay. Uh, in my area. It's in, and I just had my, my firstborn son. And so I'm like, oh, time oh, is... Congratulations. The, the clock, thanks. Clock's <laughs> ticking. I need to get this, you know, up and running. But here's the thing. I work with professionals every single day. You know, these are people who have been working for years. They've been out of school. And I see the negative effects that school has throughout people's lives. Um, I've worked with people in their seventies and I still see the negative effects 
still very present in their day-to-day lives all that time mm-hmm. later. It's because what you learn uh, in school usually is that first of all, learning is painful. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to get in your head that learning is painful and unpleasant. Right. And it's hard work and it's hard. Yeah. You, you got to stop playing. <laughs> yeah. And, and when, yes, there, every change requires like every time you want to change who you are, you have to essentially put to death the person you were to some extent. So there's always like a, there's pain and transformation to some degree. But the thing is like learning is, is playing. That's why humans play. Play is practice. Uh, And so I hate the term recess, for example, because the the term recess implies we're taking a break from the important thing. Right. We're taking a recess from learning. We leave the classroom, stop learning for a little bit, get our jitters out, come back to the classroom and start learning again. When I think the opposite (laughs) is more accurate. It's like, you sit in these chairs all day getting lectured at about things you don't care about or see as relevant to your life, especially when you're a little kid. Yep. Then you finally go out and do the thing that you're extraordinarily passionate about running around playing whatever with your friends. Mm-hmm. You learn a ton and then you go back and you sit back in those rooms and you're miserable and bored again. Now, not everybody has a terrible experience in school, but um, play uh, is practice. A lot of people do. Yeah, a lot of people do. A lot more people, I would, I would, estimate. I would argue the same thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, I think it's really under. It's really important for people to understand what play is and why humans and many other organisms do it. And there have been lots of studies. I know, like, um, if you look up Yak Pangsep's work, you can find some some stuff on rats that's really interesting about play. But um, animals that play, the animals that play the most are the ones that are most successful. Like that's the literature is pretty straightforward on that. It's like (laughs) you play more, you're more socially competent. You're a more reciprocal creature and reciprocity is what gets you ahead in social hierarchies and you're more successful. And you learn reciprocity through playing. That's, that's the, the voluntary engagement with other people in negotiation to reach shared goals. And you want to play with, people in such a way that they want to keep playing with you. This was Jean Piaget's idea of equilibrated games. Okay. Like the person who's most successful is the person who's able to interact with people in such a way that they want to continue to interact with you in the future. And you don't learn that by sitting in a room silently surrounded by people who are the exact same age as you with very little diversity, not being able to speak, not being able to pursue your own interest or engage in, voluntary exchange with other people. And that's what our school system is, at least in America right now. It's sit quietly, raise your hand if you want to talk. It's also, it's authoritarian. Everything is top down. The students have no voice, no representation. They don't decide how the school is run or how it operates. They're put there. It's essentially, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot more similar to a prison than maybe it should be. (laughs) I'll I'll say that. (laughs) And so if you want people to be successful in a democratic society, which is what we're trying to be, um, and and I hope we continue to try to be that, then they need to be able to engage in democratic processes throughout their life as early and as often as possible. And so uh, my opinion on how I would change school, if I just had a magic wand and I could change it, I would really move towards something a lot closer to the Sudbury model, if you're familiar with that. 
Um, Explain most, it for, for yeah, the ones that, that don't know. Most people aren't. And when you hear about it, if you're listening, um, you will probably <laughs> have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Most people do because it sounds so absurd and so far from what we currently do. But these schools exist. You can look them up. Sudver- Sudbury Valley in Massachusetts was one of the first to do it like this. But okay, there are no there are no classes. Uh, there are no teachers. Uh, there are no periods throughout the day. Uh, there is no segregation by age or gender or anything like that. You have staff members, and they're essentially just members of the community who take care of making sure that the building doesn't collapse and <laughs> bills are paid right. and everything's maintained. And so, and it, so it doesn't turn into Lord of the Flies, basically. Yeah, which is a lot less likely to happen with people than I think. I think we're led to believe by reading that book as kids, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the kids show up and they're there voluntarily. They have votes and everything about how the school runs, uh, and they're able to pursue their own interests on their own time frame all day, every day. No one is telling them what to do. Uh, however, it's, it's not free of rules and that's actually part of it. The, the system is the lesson. So, it's essentially a microcosm version of the real, well, at least American world. I th- there are schools like this in other countries too. Israel has has one of these. I, I know they're in several other places. So they're, they're a microcosm of the society that they exist inside of. And so you might, the next question would be like, well, why don't you just let children run around in normal society then if you're just going to have them practice? Well, it's like, it's the same reason that we play before we work. Yes. Yeah. Because you need some safety mechanisms because you're going to make mistakes as a child that if you were to make those same mistakes as an adult would be devastating and dangerous. You need an environment in which you're able to make those mistakes in a way that's safe and that you can learn from them without life ending type of penalties. Right. Right. You need to be able to practice what it looks like to be a citizen without actually being a full citizen in society in an environment that's optimized for that purpose. And so these students, they they work through the pains of democracy together of, hey, like this person pushed me too hard when we were playing tag. I actually visited a school and spent a week at one that one of these schools um, earlier this year. And that was one of the things that happened. So one of the kids was like, hey, he hit me way harder than he needed to when we were playing tag. And it's like, okay, you actually have a committee that's made up of students and staff members, a judicial committee. The kid has to bring that complaint forward and say, here's what happened. They have to evaluate it in a democratic process, essentially. So you've got your jury, you've got you've got the rule book and they look up. It's like, okay, well, based on you know, did he violate a rule? They go through the whole process. It's just like you were in court, except the penalty isn't that you go to prison, right? That's This is the right. difference between school and yeah, the real yeah. world. Is the penalties are scaled down so you can learn without ruining your life, right? And so they decided, hey, he didn't mean to hit you that hard. He apologized. We're going to let this go with a warning. And if it happens again, then we would it would, they would probably vote on a more severe punishment. Like, Hey, you can't go outside and play with them for a day or something like that. Right. And this, this, the little society enforces its own rules and forms its own rules. And so what I saw amazed me because it wasn't Lord of the flies. What it actually was, was I was seeing five-year-olds that were communicating with each other after they had had a conflict 
more effectively than I ever see adults communicate with each other. Like that's mind blowing to me. Like I saw these kids who were like, well, here's what my experience was, but let's hear from them to see what they would say about it. Because that's just my perspective. Like when's the last time you saw or heard an adult in a conflict be that reasonable? (laughs) Oh no. Social media is made (laughs) up of examples of the opposite. Like it it would be something to, to make, kind of the the memes or the videos uh, showing how these kids are outperforming uh, college students, adults, and and everyone that, that should be actually doing these things. But yeah, sorry, I, you got me I'm at a rant there, but it, it is yeah. really mind boggling. It's like if, if, if you let people direct their own interests, mm-hmm. follow their interests, oftentimes they'll find that that thing, they're actually not that interested in it after a couple of weeks. <laughs> But the problem oh, is if minutes. you're in <laughs> a couple minutes, maybe, but if you're in normal schooling, it's like you have so little opportunity to explore your own interests and pursue them that when you do find something even remotely interested in that you're remotely interested in, somebody encourages you and you try to commit your entire life to it. It's like you have right. got people saying like one teacher one time told me I was good at this and I kind of liked it. And so I went into college and got that degree and I'm miserable. Because they never had the opportunity to take that interest to where it like logically ended and realize, actually, that was a two-week interest, not a lifetime interest. But when you have all this space to pursue your own interests, those kids at that school that I visited, like when you have that much space, they figure out over time, it takes a while, but they figure out the stuff that's a two-week interest versus this is actually what I want to commit my life to. And um, we just don't have those opportunities where they should be. So there's my super long answer to your question. <laughs> no, I think it. I think it's an amazing answer, and uh, it opened my eyes as well. Um, so we've really dove into a lot of kind of geeky concepts and changed the world. Uh, and we talk about play, but we've been talking about it kind of more kind of this academic uh, way of of teaching kids lessons. Uh, how do we get the playback in actually learning, though, and the entertainment aspect uh, with this so that we can all kind of uh, have enriched lives all the way around and not think of this as being kind of a geek out or, or nerd session per se, <laughs> but uh, something that's that's enjoyable for people that that maybe have been uh, uh told or taught or self-taught and to not enjoy this stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I often have people ask me something similar to that, which is, hey, I've got this this topic I have to learn about that is absolutely uninteresting to me. How do I learn it anyway? How do I get myself to do it? And I think that's actually the wrong question to ask. Yes. Um, I think the better question is really seriously ask yourself this question because it matters and it can change the course of your life. Why are you doing it? (laughs) (laughs) If it's really so miserable to you and uninteresting, why have you let yourself get in the situation where it's now absolutely necessary for you to continue your life that you have to do this miserable thing? It's like, yeah, there's absolutely things in life that you have to do that are difficult and challenging and that you may not want to do. But if you can't see the point to it at all, maybe you should figure that out before you try to force yourself into it. Because I like to use the analogy. It's like, let's say you've got a boulder strapped to your back. 
you could go to a running coach and they could teach you how to run faster with that boulder strapped to your back. They could. They could. But any good running coach is the first thing they're going to tell you is, hey, if you want to run faster, get the boulder off your back. What are you doing? Like, I'd rather teach you to get the boulder off your back than teach you how to run faster with a boulder. And, and that's that's what I try. <laughs> try. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if if you come to me and ask me, how do I force myself and get myself to learn this absolutely miserable, you know, topic, my yes. answer is, well, let's make sure, absolutely, 100% sure that you really need to be learning it before we force you to do that. And usually in the process, they either realize I don't need to be spending my time on this and they might even rethink their whole life. And sometimes that's a great thing to do, uh, you know, <laughs> or they might in the process of realizing, no, this actually really is important to me. And once they finally realize that it becomes much more interesting and then the problem disappears. Right. Absolutely. Now, if people want to look you up to get this boulder off their back or to become this super, super learner, how can they find you? Yeah, the best way right now, uh, you can you can contact me directly. That's fine. Um, I'll respond to your email. I might re- not respond the same day, but I'll, I'll read them and I'll follow up. So if you want to contact me directly, you can do so at uh, curiosityjumpllc at gmail.com. Um, I know it's dangerous putting my email out there directly, but whatever, you know, send me an email. It's fine. Um, And if you want to check out what else we do at Superhuman Academy, you can do that at superhumanacademy.com as well. You can find a lot of other resources there. Nice. Yeah. And there's a ton of resources there. All right. For one last fun question here. uh, How far can you make it uh, with your memorization of pi? Go. <laughs> I haven't bothered memorizing pi. 3.1415265, I think. I might have even gotten that wrong. I'm not sure. That's, that's better than I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I try to spend my time doing things that are uh, enjoyable and fulfilling and not memorizing Absolutely. pi. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Colin. I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, your insight here. And for everybody, Stay tuned to the next episode of The Hardy Show, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care.